Welcome to the Ecology Everywhere podcast, where early career ecologists get to discuss anything remotely related to their research or their life as graduate students. An unfiltered, short-form discussion to get to know who hides behind the next groundbreaking ecological research and to tell us a bit more about a subject we naively thought we mastered. Today, our guest is Sammy Renshaw, a master's student at Dalhousie University, working on conservation of marine protected areas for elasmobranchs. Perfect. So the first thing we start with typically is um, an elevator pitch. So what would be your best elevator pitch for a class of undergraduate students? Oh, you got me sweating here. All right. I haven't done that (laughs) in a while. (laughs) Um, So basically my research looks at determining the effectiveness of marine protected areas for elasmobranch species. So that being sharks, skates, and rays. Um, and so I was inspired to do this because, you know, we create these these large protected areas where we might exclude fishing, we might exclude um, certain kinds of boat travel, those kinds of things. But how effective are they actually at conserving the species within them? And particularly, there are a lot that are made around the world that focus on sharks and rays in particular. And if we're creating these really large areas where we're excluding a big chunk of the population from entering, are they actually working or not? So that's what my research is looking at. And um, I focused it uh, for ease basically in Canada, but it's it's also warranted because there was a, a new protected area that was designated by based on evidence that there are um, uh, species of elasmobranchs of conservation priority in those areas. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. That's uh, super interesting. And I think it was a really quick, almost like you prepared it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had a question I was wondering about. um, And that's what branch was a group I was not, I I didn't hear about it often. Of course, we know sharks, skates, and rays, but I didn't know they were part of the same group in that sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what is the status of Elasmo branch at large in terms of uh, extinction or um, just the the pro- how 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 common are they in the waters around Canada or the other places you're, you're looking at? Yeah, so elasmobranch species um, as a whole group are declining for the last uh, decade, two decades. They've been in decline on a global scale, um, and you know there's like 300 different species of just sharks. And then there's a whole bunch of different species of rays and skates and all that kind of stuff. Um, So each one kind of has different um, levels of threat, I guess, against them. So, you know, some species might be doing really well um, because they can reproduce really quickly. And some who are more slow, like late maturation species um, are doing more poorly. In Canada, we have... um, Oh, the number off the top of my head is escaping me, but um, up there in like the 20s, 30s, different species of um, elasmobranchs. So in Canadian waters, there's a few different species of sharks that have been fished for a long time. So um, blue sharks, poor beagle sharks are bigger pelagic species that eat, you know, like bigger fish and stuff. So they're pretty and they um have been protected as well recently thankfully um because of their status so it kind of depends on where you are and what species you're looking at but as a whole because of overfishing and stuff there have been um pretty significant declines in elasmobranch populations on a global scale that's uh that's actually very interesting that you mentioned that we have that many shark species in Canada because I don't think many people necessarily realize that there's that many well shark and rays and and skate species um but but because we are in Canada I was thinking what what have you seen um I mean in the um in the kind of the past let's say 10 years in terms of uh, shark conservation when we're looking at something like shark water um you know and and these kind of media because Rob Stewart was Canadian um, have, have you seen any, any kind of, um, changes in, in the public mindset when you're, when you're talking to, talking to people about, uh, about sharks and, and other Alaska branches, Franks? Yeah. So I've, I've done a bit of outreach stuff, um, for my job last summer. And it's, it's really interesting because the first question that you get are like, no, no, come on, seriously. Like there are sharks in Canada. And I'm like, 
-hmm. Yes, there are. Like there are, we're on the Atlantic coast. Um, like the, we get great white sharks, which are a big crowd pleaser in like shark week kind of world. Right. So mm -hmm. like really like that's crazy. And some people have lived there on the coast their whole life and have never even heard of there being like sharks around and stuff. So the first step is getting people to sort of like dip their feet into the water of sharks and being in Canada. And then once they kind of get like, okay, so like what species and stuff, you can kind of um, like talk them up a little bit more and get them a little bit more interested. So I think just the recognition in the last 10 years has really improved. Um, I think mostly from the transparency around different like tagging programs. So when people can go online and, and check out like, Hey, someone tagged a shark off the coast of Lunenburg and it's now swimming around from uh, like Nova Scotia down to Florida. So to be able to track that kind of makes it more tangible for people, I think. Um, and then in terms of like policy and stuff, people, I don't think realize that Canada does import and export um, like shark fins. You hear about like ban shark fins in Florida or ban shark fins like in China, the trade and then the harvest and stuff. And then people are like, oh, well, Canada doesn't want anything to do with sharks or shark fin soup or anything like that. And and because I think it's they don't realize that we even have sharks and stuff. So so opening that up and then Canada is banned. Um, well, thinning has been illegal in Canadian waters for almost ever but now the the import and export of fins from canada is also illegal so um so i think the the media around that has helped uh like bring awareness that there is need for conservation of sharks and rays in canadian waters as well oh yeah that's definitely something i was not aware of that we had great white sharks along the coast of canada <laughs> I yeah. mean, maybe to up to the Pacific Ocean, but I wasn't. I didn't think that we had some around the Atlantic Ocean, at least. Um, yeah. I was curious to know. Um, I'm, that's probably something I could find on Google. But is there a period where sharks are a bit more prevalent in the waters around around the coast? Um, yeah. Per time of the year, or yeah. So, like, obviously, the Atlantic Ocean and even the Pacific Ocean in Canada are pretty cold all year round, and I think that's two people think like, oh, sharks are like tropical Bahamas and Australia, like warm warm climates but um actually there's some species that are around in canadian waters all year so for example greenland sharks are actually an arctic species so they live underneath the ice so way up north there's like these big old sleeping greenland sharks um, that are there pretty much all year um, as for the rest of the species they kind of float in and out of um sort of like the Cape Cod area and then down into Florida and some of them go all the way down to the Caribbean um, and are mostly only in Canadian waters in the summer. So when it's the warmest, they kind of stick around and are looking for, you know, seals and things like that. Um, so like great white sharks, for example, you really only get them for a month or two in the summer, like maybe starting in June into the fall. And then once the water starts to cool down, they sort of make their way south. Okay. So do we do we find those great whites great whites going down into uh, like through the St. Lawrence into the uh, towards the Great Lakes or how far in do they do they make their way uh, in, inland? There have been reports of some sharks. I think um, I don't maybe basking sharks up into the St. Lawrence. I'm I'm not positive on that. They kind of they stay away like offshore, so they're not really looking to come in too far. Some some sharks get, get into like the Bay of Fundy area, which is pretty cool. Um, but actually last year there was a shark who was tagged, a great white shark that pinged like to the satellites and showed that it was in the Halifax Harbor. So that got people kind of stirred up a little bit out there last summer. It was pretty cool. Um, but they only stick around right near the coast for, for like hours on end, like to feed or to cruise around or to warm up and stuff. Like they stay pretty far offshore for the most part. So that's why people generally don't ever come in contact with them. Hmm. Awesome. Um, you know, you seem to know a lot about anything that has to do with the conservation work, the media as well, and the communication that has to do with your work, of course. So when you do conservation, it, it involves a lot um, of, of work with the public, uh, with different agencies. And I was thinking like, um, some fields in ecology, it's very fundamental and you only work on a certain topic and you don't really engage with the public. But it seems like your work has lots of 
in, interdisciplinarity to it, right? It's, you have to do different mm-hmm. things that are not as related to the ecology itself. So what do you think would be the most important aspects that are not necessarily ecology-based uh, that you have to work with uh, during your master's? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that was something that I was thinking about going into my master's is, is like you can do all the research you want and tag as many sharks as you can, but at the end of the day, how are you going to get, if fishing is the issue, how are you going to get people on board to kind of stick to the management um regimes or stick to the conservation plans. So my master's was actually classified as a marine affairs master's program. So instead of being like a strict uh, MSc in like marine biology, for example, it was um, marine management. So that was something that was really important for me was looking at the flip side and thinking um, about the social aspect. So for me, I, I didn't have a lot of experience with working with social science or doing like interview style research, right? Like that's super foreign to me coming from a strict um, marine biology science background. So I tried to um, like rope in as many people into my project as I could that had those diverse experiences. Um, so like asking different people who have done interviews before or who work in more like fishery science, who work directly with the public. Um, you know, like what's the best way to engage and short sort of um, like get knowledge from the communities first when you're looking at particularly protected areas, because if you have something that's just off the coast where, you know, generations of people have been fishing and now you want to say, well, you know, there's a, a really rare species right here. Um, you can't fish anymore like that. How does that impact those people's um livelihoods and their sense of self if that's something that's really important to them you know it could be culturally it could be just like a an identifier or like a, a sentimental piece to them too right so it's how do you approach conservation from a more human level rather than like science first sort of thing um the the answer to how you go about that best still eludes me i'm still practicing <laughs> that one but i think we're trying trying to get as many people who have done this work before um kind of on in my corner and sort of help me out and guide me in the right directions to like reach the audience that i need to reach has been really helpful um especially throughout my research i was trying to figure that out actually i because i I followed you on instagram and it said you know mmm Mm-hmm. At, uh, at Dalhousie, I was like, what's that last M? I was like, M, <laughs> M- Marine something. Yeah. But full, full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a fish person. You know, I'm doing my master's looking at, at fish behavior, yeah. uh, although on the, the prey side, not the predator side. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's, it's uh, and, and previously I've done some work um, out in the East Coast, um, which was linked with some fishery work. And I think what you're saying is, is absolutely correct. It's kind of, you know, there's, there's so much so much going on on the on the kind of human side that oftentimes as ecologists we we forget i think when we can it comes to conservation um that that these things are just um it it very much is a is a the humans are important we're important all this stuff and we can't just go in and like be like okay we're gonna you can't go here anymore you can't go there anymore i mean as much as we'd like to, to to set up some of those places in what might be oftentimes maybe the perfect place to set up these parks um, or these these uh, these reserves, but I, I actually was wondering when it comes to to actually because you mentioned you're looking at the effectiveness um, in terms of you know the, these protected areas. I know that there's you know listen, there's a number of protected areas around the world um, that are kind of in the media, whether that be the one in Hawaii or oftentimes one that that I've seen make the news is uh, around the Galapagos Islands, so the mm-hmm. the northern the north I think Wolf Wolf Island, Darwin Island. And um, but they have a lot of a lot of issues, of course, between countries, you know, because, you, you know, you can set up an area, but where do you you know delineate where international waters start and where, you know, unless you, you have an active patrol. So what are some of the the um, these kind of issues you've noticed when when dealing with these international issues? Because, you know, water flows <laughs> between countries. You can't, you can't be like, hey, the water ends here and now it no longer goes to this side of the border or leaves the, the protected area. How do you, what are some of the issues you've seen on an international level when it comes to these protected areas? Yeah, that's a great question. And like you said, like water has no boundaries, right? And same with these species. So like sharks, for example, don't stay in the protected area that you made for them. Like that would never work, right? So 
Um, so yeah, that's a great question. And that's like the, probably the biggest critique for um, marine protected areas being established as a conservation tool for fish um, and like sharks included, especially for something like corals, it makes sense, right? Like they don't move. So if no one can go there, they can't disturb them. But for different species that of fish that are moving in and out of like these huge, huge geographic areas, like, yeah, exactly. How do you possibly protect them if, the, if all you're doing is basically putting up a fence, right? Like a, a, an mm. invisible fence. Um, so internationally, probably the biggest reason that marine protected areas fail or they don't reach their targets is, um, like you said, a lack of enforcement. So when you have, let's say, the Galapagos Islands MPA um, there, but you don't have like compliance or any way to enforce the rules. So if you're not allowed to take a certain species out of the water, but you have like one patrol boat, how how possibly could you ever get around to managing all of these different boats that might go out in the middle of the night or they might go out like only for one hour every month, but they're still catching like a pretty significant amount of fish. Like it's definitely um, something that is is considered in um, marine protected area like research because there's people that spend way more time than me looking at how they can be effective um, and stuff. So, so yeah, it's a good question. Internationally, yeah, the the boundary, like for example, between the United States and Canada. So if a species is protected in Canadian waters, all they have to do is move like a meter into the American side, and they're no longer protected. And different vessels can fish in different waters, and there's yeah, it's it's a whole big mess. Um, <laughs> but basically, basically for me, that's why I think the human side is so important because if you can kind of get people to understand why you're creating this area and at like a community level, say you know you might fish this resource, uh, you might fish sharks or you might catch some, but you know they are important for this reason. So if you would like to be able to continue to harvest the way that you've been doing that. Uh, it's important that there is compliance and that you're following fisheries management rules and stuff like that, which is definitely easier said than done, but it's something if approached right has been effective uh, in the past and getting communities on board has shown to significantly like improve the effectiveness of protected areas. So when places are designated with community input. So when they say like, no, we sh we'd rather have it here instead of there, they're more likely to comply if that's how it's how it's made. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a question with many layers, but it's a good one for sure. <laughs> yeah, that was really a, good with very good questions, right? I do have a follow-up question actually, if, if I can butt into Charlie's, Charlie's turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll allow you for this time because it's your first time. It's my first time back and I'm still in, in quarantine. <laughs> but the, um, the, yeah, no, well, when it comes to protected areas, another thing that I, I noticed um, when uh, when I was well, in Australia, there's there's a lot of back and forth between both recreational fisheries, commercial fisheries, and uh, conservation groups in terms of the usage of a certain protected area because I've noticed let's say in some areas where, um, you know, everyone agrees that this specific place should be protected. However, uh, what species are added in there, you know, especially when it comes to recreational fishing, there's certain species that might not be from the region, but people put in there and it kind of throws everything um, kind of out of, out of balance. But from a fisherman's perspective, it's very, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting place to go. So I'm curious when it comes to setting up these protected areas, and as you just mentioned, working with these communities, you know, there's a lot of communities, um, and, and like there's no one community is, is you know, the, we, we, can't, we can't put a, a template on a single community, right? It could be an indigenous community, it could be a community of fishermen, it could be a community of uh, commercial fisheries, it could be, you know, any number of, of, um, of, you know, groups of people and their interests as it pertains to the management of that water. Yeah. How do you, how, yeah, how do you go about balancing those, those different, um, those, those different viewpoints? Uh, it's also very tricky. Um, <laughs> that can get really complicated really fast. Uh, it's something that uh, particularly on the East coast of Canada has been really um, tumultuous, I guess. There's, there's a proposed protected area that has been 
sort of on the table for a long time and has had several town hall meetings with many different groups of people kind of really butting heads about it. So so there are t- many examples when there is no cooperation for one reason or another from different groups. And like you said, when I say like community or groups, it could be any mix of people on any side of the table. It's just sometimes they don't see eye to eye. It could be government against fishermen. It could be, you know, commercial fishermen against recreational fishers, like that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, it can be really tricky and it can, it can sort of derail conservation plans if people aren't even on the same page of talking about sharing the area. Um, So it comes down to sort of how it's approached and there's ways at the beginning to to kind of sit down and make sure that you're getting a pretty representative table together if you want to talk about you know a proposed uh, conservation plan or something like that so making sure that you have at least a representative of each stakeholder group um, can help so but sometimes there's there's um, I don't want to say bad blood but there's challenges within these groups already that run pretty deep and it can be really hard to resolve um, sometimes especially when it's government involved but um, but yeah sometimes there's no there's no remedy for things like that and other times it works just fine but I think it depends on where who what all those things and it's and it's a case-by-case basis I yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um, I was really curious to hear about, um, because my, my supervisor does work on large mammals. We do work on kangaroos, but we also work on the uh, hunted population of rams, of bighorn sheep um, in the western part of Canada, in Alberta. And um, he is stuck in all all types of uh, interactions with uh, you know, uh, hunters and government. And, you know, he has these different um, conversations, of course, and he has also these arguments with uh, the lobbying groups and whatnot. So I was curious to know, like, how how involved are the scientists in your group? Um, in, how involved are they in these decisions or in the discussions that involve uh, commercial fishermen, government, or recreational fishermen? Are they involved at all in the conversation, or do they just produce data and send it over to the government government agencies? And after that, they do the job. Yeah, that's a great question too. Like, it can be really challenging. Uh, as a scientist to even get government or groups to listen to you when you want to rope them in sometimes like saying hey we want to work with you and then they just say well your job is to just do the science or something like that but I've been really lucky and really proud to work in the lab that I've I was working in um, last summer I was working for the ocean tracking network as like an internship portion of my my program so um, they are sort of this like um, this entity that sort of transverses the science versus, um, like nonprofit versus, um, like institutional science, government, like public sort of space. So it's been really awesome. And they, they work a lot with government. They work a lot like at the university at Dalhousie to produce the science, but make sure that it kind of feeds through, um, different, like government hands first to make sure that things are working pretty well. So I think that's a, it's an example for a lot of labs to try and follow is to, to get your science to actually work for the people that it's supposed to work for or the conservation systems that it's supposed to work for and bringing on as many people to kind of like, you know, double check your work. If you're not working in the government sphere, you could put out, this really great report and then it's like okay but you didn't consider x y and z so it's not actually going to be implemented into i don't know policy or that's great but you're really going to piss off a bunch of people out on like this this coast out here so maybe we should try and figure out a different way to engage with those people before we just spit out all of these different reports but um but yeah like i I've been thankful to sort of have a hand with with different government people along the process, which has been really great. But I know that it doesn't always work that way as well. Yeah, I think definitely the uh, the policy angle can sometimes feel feel a little bit slow. I know, um, you know, with with Charlie and I, we had our, our internship um, with with you know a policy organization, and um, and while while you know, there's a lot of people doing their best. There's, I think it's a similar problem, like you're mentioning, there can be so many different hands that it has to go through. And sometimes, 
uh, you, you, you need to be verified and checked. Otherwise, you don't want to you don't want to piss somebody off <laughs> you know, in, the, in the implementation, and then nothing happens, you know, and and or worse, you know, it it almost gets uh, kind of like stonewalled, and and it becomes a big issue. But what do you? I mean, coming coming at it, you know, from that from your internship and even the work you're doing now, what are some of the um, the success stories that you've seen? Like, have you have you seen some some elements where um, where this policy has either been implemented or it looks like it will be implemented either recently or, sh- or shortly? And and kind of what are these these? Um, you know, what does it look like? What does a success story look like here? Yeah, that's a good. Um Good thought. So from my research, I don't think I can give you any examples just yet, but I will say that what I what I was basing my research off of was like decades and decades worth of um, tagging data or um, like fishery sample data. So I had a lot of research to sort of use at my disposal that had been collected by by scientists at my university for like since the 80s. and to finally like be able to pull up a document and be able to look at these reports and see the actual publications from the from the shark tagging data um and they were actually being used to inform this protected area so they said you know we've been studying these um these poor beagle sharks for like 30 years and we have a pretty good idea that this is where they go to feed during the summertime and then they move um, down south in the winter and then there's some females that stick around so they had like this this extensive extensive data set worth of uh, information on all these species and to be able to see that put into to use to create a protected area was like oh so it does go somewhere it might take a really long time but it's encouraging um And then the next step for me was to take that protected area and say, okay, you have all this evidence, you have all this, this information, but is it actually going to work in practice? Are, are the rules, um, strong enough for this protected area to actually prevent, um, the species decline or to support their, um, like their feeding habits or their mating and that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, that like that is a success story uh, in my books. I think is to actually see the science go into um, into policy, even though it it does take a really long time. And yeah, that's really cool actually. Because now, of course, the question next question after that, if the policy has been applied, has been looking at the research to to take these make these decisions. I'm wondering how much time do we have to wait for a to, to see a result, you know, to see the repercussions of a, of a policy that's been implemented, as, as an example. Um, do, is there any success stories that, um, that involve uh, results from, you know, a, a species that was declining and the decline has slowed down or anything like that? Or is it too early to, to come, come down to any conclusion? Um, in Canada, poor beagles were fished a lot um, because there was an active recreational and commercial fishery for them since that's been stopped it's the populations have i don't want to say rebounded in the sense that they're back to what they would have been before the fishery was open but they're not in as much of um a decline as they were before so that's that's encouraging um and in for marine protected areas in general I can't think of any Canadian examples that I'd be able to spin off the top of my head where there have been like improvements in communities like um, like fish community structure or whatever. But there are definitely um, international examples where protected areas have been implemented and not only have the species kind of like the biodiversity's increased, the species abundance has increased, but also um, the profitability of the communities to fish there and to harvest those resources has either been sustained and they're able to continue fishing or it's um, it's increased with within reason. Like they might not be able to just fish um, as much as they want, but they can they can make their living still. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of the one in particular what it's called, but there are some international examples like that for sure. So the hope is when Canada implements MPAs, that that is what will happen, is that it's beneficial for everyone, not just the people and not just the species, but the whole the whole group. Yeah, yeah definitely. Fantastic. 
Uh, Arun, do you have any other question regarding uh, the research? Yeah, actually, well, yeah, I was, go I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna. I mean, I have a million and one questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I was, but but one I, I really really want to know is what what can what can the average person do? Let's say either a non scientist or a scientist that's you know in another field like working on kangaroos and hasn't quite found out that working on fish species is actually better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what what can what can um what what can what can the average person do when it comes to uh to to furthering these efforts you know to to either raise awareness or get involved in these um you know these initiatives to to form these these marine protected areas yeah i think that my advice to to like my family and friends and people of the public that i've talked to is just you know, make yourself aware of when these things are happening. So for example, there's, um, there's always, well, always, at least in Canada on the East coast, um, meetings or, um, like round table discussions about protected areas when they're being implemented. Um, and you know, educating yourself about those kinds of things that are happening in your community can be really helpful and understanding not just that the government wants to implement or a, a conservation organization wants to implement a protected area, but, but why are they maybe looking at this, this place in particular? So sort of putting on your, your scientist hat or your ecologist hat and thinking, okay, well, there must be something here that's important and sort of understanding you might not have to dig into the, the full, like, <laughs> ecological background of the area but just thinking like okay there's a a little crab species that's really important because it eats like this type of seaweed and that's invasive or something like that like just trying to trying to piece together a little bit of the puzzle and so um like step one understanding that sharks aren't as scary as as you might think they are and that they're actually important for for the ecosystems um on our on all coasts basically there's almost nowhere on earth that sharks don't inhabit uh the ocean so um just just like i guess acknowledging how important different species and different groups of of um animals are important in one way or another even if you don't understand why or how but that there is there is value to each species so um i think yeah getting educated what doing something that you're actually you like so maybe it's not sharks unfortunately even though i'd tell you to <laughs> i'd tell you they're the best but like if there's something that you're really interested in so like snakes or something like if that's what you you're or will keep your attention i think you have a better chance of making impact if you're interested um in those species so so kind of finding your niche and, and getting educated about it can help but sharks really are adorable, aren't they? I mean, I've seen, um, I've, I've been, you know, on, on dives, for example, at night in, in certain parts of the world with, with sharks. And they really seem like they're just these very curious animals that are just kind of looking around like, what's, what's going on? Like, come pet me. <laughs> <laughs> they're adorable. I love them. Yeah. They're just like little puppies of the sea. <laughs> they really are. Puppies they really are. <laughs> I like it. I'm sure most people in the population will not agree with you, but it's just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not reasonable fear. One step at a time. First time. Soon. One step at a time. Exactly. You go into Galapagos, swim with reef sharks. They're not that scary. And after that, uh, they'll start understanding that they're, they're not all mean out there. Um, the biggest species of sharks on earth would never hurt you at all. Repeat that, please. The three largest species of sharks on earth only yeah. eat plankton. They don't eat. Oh yeah. They wouldn't. They don't barely even have teeth. So. So we have the shark, whale shark, right? Yeah, the whale shark's the biggest. Okay, and what are the two other ones? I think the, basking, the basking shark is the second largest, and okay. those are out on the east coast and west coast of Canada, and in uh, like around Scotland. And then the megamouth shark, mm. pretty cool looking. If you want to look it up later. Um, <laughs> yeah. <I laughs> and they're like in um, in like Southeast Asia. Okay. Which is the, the green, is the Greenland shark fourth then, I guess? Greenland shark in terms of overall size? I don't know. I think the great white might be, would be bigger, would be like fourth. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but Greenland sharks get really long. Huh. Their tails are really long, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I just Googled it. Yeah, they come in all different shapes, huh? It's crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Sammy, I have actually a couple of questions to ask you a bit 
far away from your research. Uh, usually we asked questions a bit earlier, but your subject was so interesting that we <laughs> kind of spent a, a bit more time. Um, so, of course, you were doing a master's. Uh, you might do PG later on. You might go into conservation. But what um, got you into ecology at first? What was like the, the moment that you decided you want to be an ecology student at a master's level? Um Ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in the ocean. Like I just would have DVDs of like um, undersea explorer or something like that. And the shark tapes were always the ones that were worn out. Like I would, they'd be skipping and I'd still be watching this, this DVD. Um, and I think I just knew forever that I wanted to do something with the ocean. And then I got into um, like my later years of high school and was just like, I think I want to be a marine biologist. Um, and then as my undergrad career kind of progressed, I realized that I was more interested in like how species interact and how they interact with their environment as opposed to just like physiology, which was is kind of the default sometimes, like understanding um, like what makes a species internally function versus how they, they uh, interact with their like town specifics and stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was just like um, the, the, drive of loving sharks and wanting to know more about like what they're actually like out in the environment and stuff and being able to dive with them so um that's sort of where I where I went along my journey into looking at conservation and um ecology stuff awesome thank you very much for this I mean it's always cool to uh, to hear what stories brought you know students to where, where they are now um, on my end, it was the opposite, right? I was not really an outdoorsy person. I was just doing sports. And at some point, I just got interested into ecology when Arun and I went to the Galapagos Islands and I found out that ecology was actually cool and you could actually do lots of things with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and now, like, it's it's amazing how big of a topic it becomes now nowadays, right? Uh, I know you do lots of science communication initiatives as well, or you, you work with women in shark science, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious because that's, uh, for me, it's a very niche topic, right? Shark science, as an example. And right. I was wondering, how many women in shark science do you know? Like, how many people doing shark science in general do you engage with on a daily basis outside of your lab? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, growing up, I would watch Shark Week religiously every year like I had to sit and watch the whole shark week every summer um and like you never as a young girl I never saw anyone that looked like me uh like on the tv like there was no there was maybe one woman um like when I was little to look up to the other everyone else was was men um particularly white men so it was like what like where would I fit in this sort of world um and I always grew up playing sports too. So it was never like, it was, if it was a challenge that was fine with me. I could, I was going to take it on no matter what. But then um, I went and did an internship in South Africa while I was in my undergrad and the woman running her lab uh, was Canadian. And so it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, she's like me. We grew up not too far away from each other, actually, in Ontario. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I got there, and it was like everyone that was running the place was a woman. And I was like, this is awesome. This is, like, super badass that we're just this group of women, like, women scientists doing shark research. I never saw something like this, and now I'm living it. Um, so that was really awesome to see. And um then I went to the Bahamas and did some more research there. And like, I would say 90% of the people at the lab that I was with there were also women in the same situation as me, just like wanting to get experience, wanting to get, you know, like more practice and stuff. And it was just, it's always been sort of this little community that I've found within shark science of like really awesome, supportive fellow women. And not that the men also aren't super supportive that I've met too. <laughs> Everyone that I've met in shark science has been great, but it's not something that you'd see from the outside. So right. when I would come home and tell people about all my experiences, it's like, oh, she, uh, her, like talking about all my friends and they're like, oh, that's really cool. Like you're, so there was a lot of girls for you to hang out with. And I was like, yeah, they're like all girls to hang out yeah. with. Um, but, it, but it's interesting because um, someone else just tweeted in the like shark world, 
the other day, I think he was saying that like, I forget if it was like 60% of his colleagues or like 90, it wasn't 90, but it was a over 50% of his colleagues are women and like 90% of people on Shark Week are men. So it's just like the visibility in the, um, in the, um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> in the field, in the field is, yeah. is, is lacking. Right. And, um, and particularly not just women, but women of minorities as well. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's something that should change to be more representative of what it actually looks like, but I think it is making progress for sure. And there's a lot of awesome people around. Yeah. hundred percent. I can relate to some extent. Uh, were you going to add something else or? No, go ahead. No. Yeah. I was just going to say, I can relate to some extent, of course, because there's not many uh, black males uh, doing kangaroo research uh, and mm -hmm. I probably won't find any of them in Canada since uh, kangaroos are not found all, <laughs> all over the world like sharks, right? Right. <laughs> so, no, definitely I can understand how this is a, probably a very motivating factor for you and I, I imagine you would like to pursue in shark science for a long time afterwards. Do you like to stay in shark? Uh, because like that, this is something that has been you know, the center of, a center of interest for your entire childhood as well. So I guess you would like to to work in shark conservation afterwards? Yeah, I definitely, my plan moving forward is to hopefully pursue a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna actually, I, I'm definitely sticking with sharks as my main focus. They'll always be my my one true love, I guess. But um, I do wanna turn a little bit towards the, um, more towards the social science side of things because I think there are a lot of great people who are doing great ecological research and and tagging hundreds and thousands of sharks every year. So like, that's super awesome. And I would love to do that too, but I'm really interested now in looking at how um, like we as a Western society are sort of imposing our views um, in places where there's a, a need for shark conservation um, on an ecological level. So like species are declining and a lot of rare species are sort of disappearing. Um, like sawfish, um, and like guitar fish, like these really, really awesome species of sharks and rays that are being harvested because they're so rare and like mm -hmm. coveted for their, their commodities of their fins or their like, um, their cartilage and stuff like that. But, but when we impose conservation bans, does it disproportionately affect certain communities where it might make sense for like a Western driven uh, governmental or like NGO organization, but not necessarily like on the ground and you're actually like disadvantaging a lot of communities. So, um, and for some reason, shark science in particular does this a lot where it's like kind of, I don't know if it's like an ego thing or if it's mm -hmm. like a, sharks are super cool and we just have to protect them at all costs, like really hardcore. Right. I'm not sure, but it sort of seems like, like protect at all costs. And it's like, that could, that could really devastate um, like fishing communities that rely on these resources for their livelihoods. Right. So, so that's where I'm hoping to turn my research uh, into a PhD sometime soon, but okay. we'll see. Awesome. Yeah, I guess one step at a time, right? Uh, but I definitely see how could, there could be a need uh, in this uh, in this niche as well, right? Uh, we know so much about sharks, but do we know how they impact communities all over the world? You know, is there somewhere in particular that that you would like to to have some field work for your PhDs? Though you know, there's a place where you know there's a shark species that's at risk, but there's a community that's highly dependent on it. Yeah. So pretty much all over Indonesia, there's a lot of. Um, shark fishing and stuff that happens in a lot of trade but it's sort of unreported and not really regulated but there are also it's a lot of attention towards the people there for for harvesting these things so indonesia is a big one um and there's a lot of like tiger sharks and um some sawfish and guitar sharks like all these these really cool species are fish there um and in papua new guinea as well so mm -hmm. um somewhere over there <laughs> right. Yeah, I think there uh, definitely is a need. I mean, having recently returned from from you know my trip out down in that region and and in Malaysia, seeing you know in Kuala Lumpur in the capital in, in Malaysia, the just the number of shark fins at a single shop just openly for sale. Mm -hmm. um, I I was just astounded, and I think you know scientists like yourself that are working 
with people, but also, you know, on a, on a species which is essentially commodified as much as it is, I think it's, you know, it's inspirational. It needs to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my thought too. It's, it's crazy. And I haven't seen it firsthand. I haven't been over uh, in Asia to see that. But um, that's like my my supervisor, potential supervisor definitely has. Um, and I've read a lot about it. Like it's there's a definite need for sure. Um, so hopefully one day I'll I'll get over there and do that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Arun, do you have a last question before uh, we close it off? Okay. Before, before we wrap it up. Yeah, actually, well, I, I have just one one little one small question. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, what I'm really interested in is what is your favorite species of sharks? And so, actually, I've been I was wondering this the whole time because like you've been <laughs> so many different species of sharks, and I'm just like, what is that one? What about that one? So, what's what's your absolute favorite? That is such a difficult question, um, <laughs> and it's one that I should have an answer to off the top of my head by now, but it's always so hard because it changes. Yeah. Um, I really like tiger sharks. I guess that's probably a bit cliche, but they're just so pretty. Um, and when they're babies, they have like the most beautiful striped like patterns on their skin that fade a little bit over time, but they're so cool. Um, so right now in this moment, I'm going to say tiger sharks, but it probably would change if you asked me that next week. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they're a beautiful species of shark. <laughs> I concur on that. <laughs> yeah. Arun, do you have a be uh, favorite species of shark? My favorite species, um, I would say uh, maybe, ooh, that's a hard one. I like I like just Greenland sharks because they just seem like they're just doing their own thing. You know, there's something about this massive, or whale, I guess any any shark really is kind of doing its own thing, but there's something about these really large sharks that they just look like they're kind of, they've been living forever. They've seen it all, right? Then they just, they're like in this like zen kind of <laughs> mindset just moving around the ocean doing its own thing especially like you were mentioning earlier the, the you know the ones that are basically eating i guess plankton um they're they're just just doing their own thing i don't know there's just something about that that i i maybe maybe i need a bit more zen in my life maybe that's why i'm <laughs> kind of i'm projecting myself onto these sharks but there's definitely yeah but i, I would say one of you know maybe the greenland shark because it always looks like it's just kind of just hanging out <laughs> It's a good choice. It's a good one. They're super cool. Yeah, I can see Aruna as being the one who's seen it all and just like drifting slowly through the oceans. <laughs> just drifting, wandering about. I mean, to, about. Be fair, to be fair, like Port Jacksons are also pretty cool because they look like they're like little pigs, right? They're the ones with the, uh, like the snout, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and they have really cool, um, I'm always fascinated by the sharks that actually lay their eggs. So Port Jacksons are one of the sharks that lay eggs and their egg cases are like, there's complete spirals like they look like the tip of a drill it's super cool oh it's so neat oh my God. <laughs> it is impressive and it's scary at the same time right <laughs> it's like some crazy thing will come out of that egg at some point something no, beautiful cute little baby yeah come on <laughs> i don't know just the shape of the egg just makes me uneasy <laughs> no All they're right. sweet so, Sam, for our last question that we ask um, every single one of our guests is, um, is a question you can uh, answer the, the, whichever way you want. You can spend mm -hmm. 10 seconds on it or five minutes on it. We don't really mind. Um, three hours. Three hours? <laughs> buckle up, guys. Yeah, buckle up. <laughs> exactly. So the question goes uh, as follows. How do you engage in scientific or philosophical conversations? And the sub-question to that would be, what does ecology everywhere mean to you? I really like this because it's not really something I had considered, but I guess reflecting on it, I do it more on a daily basis than I would probably recognize. Um, ecology everywhere to me means sort of embracing um, like everyone's questions or everyone's like thoughts or wonderings about like particularly what I do. So sharks in general, shark science um, and just, like sharing that knowledge that I have and with family, with friends. Um, it's like my favorite thing is to just chat about what I love and discuss, um, you know, how sharks fit into our ecosystems and into our oceans and why they're such a big part of, of 
um, marine life in general and how they support biodiversity and all this kind of stuff and just sort of kind of peel back the layers of of what can kind of be an intimidating subject for some people like you can kind of crack open the door when a kid asks you like what's your favorite kind of shark and then you know you dig into to the well it's this because of this um like I really like that they lay eggs or something like that you know um and they're like oh that's kind of cool and it sort of opens up questions and uh and answers in a more organic way just sort of being um my my genuine self and my scientist self um all at all at once and wearing multiple hats all at once um i just love getting to chat with people and share what i know and what i learn because i wish that i had had someone like that when i was a kid to just talk to um and ask all the questions that i had and even if they were like silly questions like i love I love silly questions. I love simple questions because they're just, they're so genuine and they're so heartfelt and people just want to learn. So I think, um, I think just, just chatting with people really and um, sort of breaking down the walls of science a little bit because it can be something that people are afraid to to talk about if they feel like they're not as educated on a subject, but mm-hmm. we all started somewhere. So as long as you're willing to have those conversations and sort of um, open yourself up to other people, it, it I think it helps um, enlighten what I do on a daily basis and show that scientists are just people at the end of the day. I could not agree more. That's an awesome answer. What do you think, Arun? Absolutely. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> like I love, I love what you said. You know that that you have opening the door. Um, that you know, there's, I think that's that's a big part of it is just finding that that place where you can you can start those conversations as well. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that's something I really enjoy doing too. Like doing it beyond the field with the kangaroos and having tourists showing up to the park and asking the silliest questions, uh, the questions I would never think about too. Right? Like you've been spending like years on the project and you've never thought about like the simplest question and the kid just comes up and it's like five years old and asks you that one question you might not even know how to answer it but you'll find a way right yeah so. and i i love that too when when someone asks you a question I'm like you know what i don't know like i have no <laughs> idea i'm gonna go and look that up and i think being able yeah. to do that to people too helps like mm-hmm. saying i don't know right, let's let's find out together or let's exactly let's figure it out so yeah i love that that's yeah. my favorite that's my favorite answer to give. You know what? I actually don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's it's find so out. Humility. Let's go on a journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think uh, this is the end for uh, this week's podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Sam. Honestly, that was uh, an amazing conversation. That was it for this week's episode of Ecology Everywhere podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us or with one of our interviewees, Contact us at ecologypodcast at gmail.com. And if you or a friend of yours sees ecology everywhere, get in touch with us to feature in our next episode.